When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Tomorrow marks the 25th anniversary of the movie The Last Days of Disco, which opened on June 12, 1998. I spoke to writer-director Whit Stillman in 2016 during the release of his period piece comedy Love and Friendship. Whit Stillman, thanks for coming in, sir. Thanks, Jason. Um, he's a writer and director of the new movie Love and Friendship. First of all, I guess just if our listeners aren't aware of it, they know and love Jane Austen, a lot of them, but tell them what, what this one's about. It's based on Lady Susan. Well, this is really funny, Jane Austen. Um, I, I love the, the movie Sense and Sensibility that's the romantic Jane Austen. This is her really funny piece. And so if people like things like Oscar Wilde and Evelyn Waugh, this is that kind of British humor. <laughs> all right. And what uh, what's... Tell us about Lady Susan, the character, and, and sort of what the plot is. Well, Kate Beckinsale plays Lady Susan. She was in um, my other film, Last Days of Disco. Mm -hmm. And um, she is scheming. She's been left a widow without any money because she spent all her rich husband's money. And she's looking for a new um, rich husband for herself and another for her daughter. Awesome. You said you worked with Kate Beckinsale before. Take me back to the first time you worked with her and, you know, sort of when you didn't know how it was going to go and sort of how that's evolved past one movie and now a second one. Well, I remember when she came over to do Last Days of Disco, um, I'd seen her in some things she had done in Britain, such as Cold Comfort Farm and the miniseries of the Jane Austen Emma. And she came into our offices where we were doing the production for Last Days of Disco in 1997. And she was so pretty. I mean, she was then about 23, but she seemed like a pretty teenager. And um, it sort of reminded me like when, when, when my daughter and her friends were teens. Oh, my God, we have a very young person here. Right. And um, she looked fantastic. And uh, it's incredible how, how pretty she, she looks. And it's exactly the role in the... Um, in, in the work, because Jane Austen said she's 35 but looks 25, and so it really works for her. And Chloe Sevigny, who is also in Last Days of Disco, is also in this this film. And we have the wonderful English actor Stephen Fry and a whole group of very funny English character actors. So this is uh, Funny Austen, and it's playing incredibly well. It um, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and was the comedy hit of the festival, and it comes out in, you know now, and uh, I'm really ha happy about it. Where was this? Um, I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with Jane Austen's stuff, but where where was this in the chronology of her? Of her book? Well, this is, this it, is a novella, right? Yeah, this is something she wrote the same time she was writing the first drafts of Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. This is actually the first sort of adult piece she wrote, but I think it was so funny and so sort of amoral and scandalous. Um, they really enjoyed it within their family, but I think she hesitated about publishing it because she came. 
really quite, quite, quite moral. And, and she wanted her, her novels to have a sort of moral impetus. So she was writing it while those others, but, she, but she they wrote, came out first and she held off releasing this? Is that yeah, what Yeah, this wasn't published until long after she died. Okay. And so she was writing Pride and Prejudice first version, Sense Sensibility first version, and the first version of what we call Love and Friendship um, at the same time. Gotcha. How do you go about? Because um, there's been a lot of her, her, a lot of Austin's works have been adapted for the screen, and, and some really great ones too, like you mentioned. How do you go about making it with your own style? Is it is it trying to infuse it with more comedy than those other ones, or how do you give it? Yeah, your own I, style? I think that's it. We were able to do it um, independently without being forced into a formula, and so it's pretty unusual film. And it was shown as the surprise film in a film festival. It was Glasgow in Scotland. And um, so the people went in not knowing what film they're going to see. And the comments we got off Twitter were from a lot of guys and, and women who don't like period films. They don't really like Jane Austen films. And they said they really loved it. And so a lot of people who who, who don't like uh, you know romantic films and Jane Austen films uh, really respond to the film. So you, so you think since it was sort of a surprise, they see they see it come up, the period piece, yeah. they see the lavish <laughs> costumes, they think they know what they're going to get, and then all of a sudden yeah. they laugh in their butt. Yeah, I think their heart sinks when the you know theme music <laughs> plays and the credits and, oh, period, and they don't really like period. And then very quickly, people see it's a comedy, very they quickly. start laughing their butts off? Yeah. Well, they don't really quite start laughing that way right away, but it yeah. gets that way when some of the British comic actors come on because it's like John Cleese walking into, uh, Monty Python walking into Jane Austen at times. <laughs> Although, I think we respect you know, the reality of, of, of the novel okay. um, and that the Jane Austen fans uh, like that. It was shown in the Washington um, Film Festival in April and sensational response from the audience. What what film fest was that? The, the, the Washington, the DC Film Fest. Film fest DC. Shared last month at DC Film Fest did really well. That's a, yeah, and that's part of their 30th anniversary, so that's great. All right, well that's really cool. Well, it's nice to see. There you go, listeners. DC uh, audiences already pr- gave it the stamp of approval. Now come out and see it at the mall. I'm a DC native. I was born in uh, I think it's George Washington Hospital here. Oh. And there's nice. a period when I was making films where all the leading actors in my films were born in the same hospital. Really? What is it about Washington as a crossroads for pregnant women? <laughs> it's a very, well, I've heard it called a lot of things, a transient city and a lot of, but never the crossroads for pregnant women. But there you go. <laughs> awesome. Did you guys, did you, were you in the nursery together at the hospital? You remember, you like no, did your casting no, session they're all, that early. They're all 30 years younger than me, so <laughs> we missed. That's awesome. Okay, well, tell, I mean, since you brought that up, let's go into that a little bit. I want, I want to hear a little of your backstory and then we'll come back around to the movie. But, um, you know, so you were born at GW Hospital. Um, where'd you grow up? In, in the city? Well, I grew up all over. I grew up uh, in, in Georgetown and also uh, in New York State. Um, my father was in politics. He was in Kennedy's class at Harvard, and he ran Kennedy's campaign in New York State. And he also worked for Franklin Delano Roosevelt Jr. So he sort of um, you know, worked for these uh, Democratic Party um, royal families, so the Roosevelt's and the Kennedys. Wow. Do you remember uh, anything with, with Jack? I mean, you were born in 52? Yeah, so. I remember when my father, um, Kennedy, was staying at the Carlisle Hotel in New York, and um, he had, my father had worked for Harriman for a while, and so I remember he passed me off to Avril Harriman and said, um, you know, Avril, can you introduce um, my son to Jack? And he was still called Jack before he became Mr. President. Sure. So I met, I shook hands with uh, President Kennedy as Senator Kennedy wow. in October of uh, 1960. Wow. So you're like cool. seven or eight, eight years old. Stayed in a good hotel. I'd love to stay in that hotel sometime. <laughs> Carlisle. Wow. 
That's crazy. All right, well, so but your dad, so your dad is is working for what now one of the most famous you know political campaigns ever. Did you ever want to go into politics, or how did you go? Into yeah, I did. I did want to go into politics, but I was doing a college interview um, when I was sixteen, and I recited what I wanted to do, and it was actually just what my father would have wanted to do, and I realized that I wanted to to get into writing. So I, I then admired F. Scott Fitzgerald a lot. So I thought, um, oh, I want to be a novelist like F. Scott Fitzgerald. You should, while you're in D.C., you know, he's buried up in Rockville, right? Oh, you know oh gosh, I forgot yeah, that. You should get up I there. Him and Zelda are buried next to each other oh, up that, in Rockville, right up the road. That's cool to know. I was down in Montgomery, Alabama, um, and it's interesting to see the house they share there and the whole Zelda. Of course, they look, they, they, they really think badly of Scott Fitzgerald in, in Montgomery. Really? He ruined poor Zelda. Oh, a lot of people, yeah. and then uh, Most people feel the opposite. Yeah, well, yeah, there was a little give and take on that relationship. Yeah. We could do a whole separate podcast on that if you want. Okay. <laughs> with the mental health, you know, her burning down. Oh, that was, there's a lot of horrific stuff with that. Um, but so anyway. You studied it. You're a Fitzgerald fan. I, I mean, yeah. Right? You got to be, right? Yeah, no. Good. I, the, all, that, that whole thing's fascinating. And His granddaughter was in my class in school here. Oh, really? We all had a crush on her. Is this Scotty's daughter? Or yeah, this, okay. very pretty. <laughs> She had those sad eyes that was she the make, one that got away? Make fourteen year olds and hearts break. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. You who knew? His his the one that got away was the granddaughter. There you go. Um, okay, cool. All right. Well then how did you so you said you got into writing then instead of politics. So did yeah. you did you study what was it you were like a lit major in college or what, Well, I sort you? of followed my high school interest into history major. Okay. But I was mostly trying to write. I was working for the newspaper, the Harvard Crimson. And I was writing these musical comedies um, for the Hasty Pudding shows that never got got made. But my last film, Damsels in Distress, is sort of a, a frustrated college musical. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, well then how did you pivot then into filmmaking from those those stage musicals? Well, I didn't have the stamina to be a novelist, so um, I thought maybe in audiovisual media I could make a mark. And uh, got into independent film uh, through the Spanish film industry. It's a long story. And made my first film, Metropolitan, uh, which came out in 1990. Mm-hmm. Nominated for the Oscar. Yeah. Played that, Sundance. Yeah, that was really Cinderella's story. And then Barcelona in 94 and Last Day's Disco we talked about. Yeah, yeah. Um, take me back to that, because, God, that's 1990. That's been... 26. Oh, God. 26. 26 Metropolitan yeah. just had its um, 25th uh, anniversary re-release last summer. Weird to think 1990 is 26 yeah. years ago. But yeah, that's right, because Goodfellas just had 25th anniversary. Yeah, that's right. Um, what was it like going out there to the Oscars for the first time? Oh, that's that was marvelous. I'd, I'd always hated the Oscars um, just because if you're a frustrated filmmaker, you hate seeing all those people who are successful. Right. And also, it's the night. Lot, it was, it was, in the old days, it was sort of the last night before you, your taxes were due. So it was a double whammy. <laughs> and so you're trying to do your taxes and hating everyone. Yeah. And then, um, but then when I went out, oh my gosh, it was fantastic. But now I've gone back to hating them. Any good stories from your time? Well, I was sitting behind uh, Dustin Hoffman and the celebrated um, uh, talent agent Mike Ovitz. And Billy Crystal was the MC that year. And he was um, making Mike Ovitz jokes. And I remember... Dustin Hoffman was pretty funny. He sort of held his hand and said, the pain is receding. The pain is receding. The pain is receding. <laughs> like a Pink Floyd line. There is no pain. You are receding. Um, okay, cool. So who were you? You were up first. The screenplay that year, right? Yeah. Do you remember who you battled? Was um, it Pelleggi? The fellow named Ruben who had done Ghost. Oh, Ghost. But a friend of mine um, won. Um, I think Nick Kazan won for the Adapted for Reversal of Fortune. That was my memory. But Okay, cool. All right. Um, and then since then, obviously, you mentioned the, the other films you've done. Um, 
which brings us full circle sort of back around to you know you know you casting um Beckinsale what what makes her uh, a great actress in your mind well um well she brings a lot of brilliance to it um her father was a really well-loved comic actor in in sitcoms in in Britain and she sort of inherited some of that just natural ability to have the right timing to I mean, these are comic actors, so they're not stand-up comedians. It's not Will Ferrell who generates his own material. But they have the timing. They know how to make it funny. I've met actors who you think are really impressive and really intelligent, and they tell you, I cannot do comedy. I cannot do comedy. And you think, well, if you're a good actor, you can do anything. But actually, they're right, generally. If they say they can't do comedy, they generally cannot do comedy. And Kate can do comedy. Also, she looks terrific, and she's, um, she's really smart. She went to Oxford. Um, she speaks French and Russian, studied the literature of those countries. And so she brings a lot of brain power to it. She went over the script a lot. I mean, I had a, a too long script and things weren't really explained. I really had, since we're doing it independently, I had no one going over it with a fine tooth comb. And she went over it with a fine tooth comb. Yes. And so I'd get all, I don't know where she was at the beauty parlor or where, but I'd get all these comments from her iPhone about this scene and that scene. And it was very helpful, actually. That's good. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. What What was the rehearsal process? Because everyone does it a little different. Do, do yeah, she, I don't like that. Like to, you don't I don't like rehearsals, really. I like that they're fresh and uh, I'd prefer to shoot the, re- the rehearsals. I mean, shoot the you know, camera rehearsals if we could. Right. Sometimes, sometimes I think, oh my God, that's priceless. You know, that we've got it. And they say, oh, that was rehearsal. We weren't recording. Why well, you got to just roll on it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the crew objects because the focus puller thinks he'll be made a fool of. Right. Um, but, or she, because we had a female focus puller. Um, and, um, but, but I, I love the freshness. Yeah. Are you a multiple take guy or are you? Uh... Yeah, I do. I mean, we're here. We've done all this work to get here. Let's get a lot of takes. Sucker's lit perfectly. Let's do it. All right. Um, what about uh, even before you get to set, though? What is I'm whenever we have filmmakers in here, I'm always interested. What is sort of the your strategy when you know you've got the script, you go over it. What, take me through you know your strategy in, in putting together your shot list. Well, I don't do a shot list usually, okay. um, particularly. Um, I just heard this from the cinematographer in the interviews afterwards that he hates doing storyboarding and shot lists. And it turns out we really got along well on that score because I feel the same way. I feel you get to the location and you figure it out right then. Oh, okay. And, um, a spontaneous thing. In, yeah, in yeah, you there. really, because particularly in this kind of film where we're not building studio sets, um, which generally tends to be a nightmare, um, we get to these actual locations that really look like what we're filming and 
really respect the location and, and they're they're a big part in the beauty of the film. I keep should mention the title again, Love and Friendship, because they say that's important, Love and Friendship. We changed the title. It's based on her novella Lady Susan, and she'd used Love and Friendship as the title for an earlier short story. Yeah. But I, I've seen people before where they take, you know, a good title and put it on something with the weaker title. Right. Um, why do you think why'd you go with this one? Like well, it's what she did really with most of her films. She started out with character names as her titles, and then when she finished it, it became Sense and Sensibility, or Pride and Prejudice, or in this case, Love and Friendship. I see. I got you. Okay. And why? Explain why that that plays into the theme here of the story. Well, I didn't think it did. I thought it was just a good title. <laughs> I think we have a good title and a good story, and we'll put them together and and see what happens. But actually, after finishing it and looking back, there is a lot of love and friendship in the story. So. A lot of, it's quite curious because Chloe Sevigny and Kate Beckinsale are very big in the film, but they really have no story in between themselves. And a lot of the comedy is these girls plotting how they're going to do what they're going to do, particularly Kate telling Chloe how she's going to do it. And so that's the friendship. It's a huge friendship. And then it's all the love plays that are going on around that. And some people are sincerely in love and some people are in love to, to get money. And frankly, that goes on to this very day. I gotcha. I've even seen in, in my own family some people, you know, who their interests could be mercenary. Yeah. So the Jane Austen world continues. Oh, it's not something in, you know, in some nostalgic thing. It's it's ongoing for sure. Um, you mentioned that some, you know, in terms of a lot of times you get to the location before you decide where you're going to, where you put the camera for all your setups. Um, where did you guys shoot? Where on the well, well, the back lot for beautiful... Um, 18th century British period films is really the area around Dublin okay. because London and the whole metropolis that London is the center of has been kind of ruined for period filmmaking. Um, you can't get around. And so the you area around gridlock or is too built up. It's every, every different way. There's okay. it's, it's too much money and all that. Well, um, the area around Dublin has been sort of left as it was. And these were the, the really wealthy English aristocrats of that period they were in Ireland, the Anglo-Irish, the Ascendancy, and um, they left beautiful great houses and castles, and uh, we were able to film in them. And then the people, the crews there are really great at doing periods. So there are a lot of Jane Austen and other period films that shot there. Do you have a favorite scene or sequence? Yeah, Without I think... spoiling anything if yeah, you want to see I it, think but. my favorite scene is one that involves... It, 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 don't be intimidated. It does involve um, the biblical commandments. Okay. Um, and so it's, it's quite both educational and, and, and funny. How do you weave that in there? Uh, it's not, it's not just no with 15, 10 commandments, right? Dropping one of the tablets. He did that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, remember? Oh, you got History of the World Part 1. I got to see that. You're, you, <laughs> he holds up three and he goes, Lord Jehovah gives me 15. <laughs> Ten commandments. Yeah, it's great. But uh, anyway, no. It's okay. a bit no, of a. It's a. It's a bit. There. It's a bit. Without knowing about that scene, it's a bit of a tip of the hat to that scene. Oh, okay, interesting. So it's just dropped into the middle of the film. Um, anything? Oh, you mentioned the music. Who, yeah. Who does the the score here? This American uh, composer, Mark Suazo, has worked on all our films, and he recorded the score. But we used just many, many composers from the period. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot of really beautiful uh, Baroque music, and Sony Classical is coming out with the soundtrack. I think people will really like it. It's okay. just just beautiful music from Handel, um, Purcell, Vivaldi, um, and a lot of more obscure um, uh, composers, French composers. Um, Frémat is has this beautiful piece that I hope people will discover. Awesome. Um, and you mentioned the cinematographer earlier, but I don't think you said his name. It's impossible to say his name. Um, <laughs> 
it's Richard Van Oosterschout or something like that. Okay. It's it's okay. it's Dutch and okay. it's unpronounceable for an American. Gotcha. All right. Well, regardless of how Richard, much we, we call him. Yeah. How much we butcher it? What is Richard? Um. What is uh? What <clears throat> working that collaboration? Take me into that. What did you guys decide to, in terms of? Is it like deep focus lenses or or what sort of the the look? Well, um. I like things to look really rich and lush and pretty. And um, we were really in sync. The shoot went really well. We, we did it very tightly. Um, and our only sort of difference of opinion was that when it came to doing the color grading, the, the deciding the final color, the last phase. And we were doing it in Amsterdam because we were a co-production between several con- countries. And they have a style there where they mute all the colors. So if they see green, they turn it down. And I came in and saw it and said, what is this? This is depressing. And so... You don't like that muted. <laughs> and so it's sort of like, Richard, go away. Um, <laughs> you know, he sort of excused himself and, and let me do the color. And um, I think he's really happy with it now. And it's going really well. And he's getting tons of interviews um, because people lo- love what he did. So you like the colors to pop. But, but the American thing, I think, is more colors. What do you it. think that caused that... Growing up, I mean, is it just watching Technicolor movies growing up, or what? What do you think? Oh man, I remember. I remember when Color TV came in, and boy, was that great. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I do think that it's a bit extreme in, in Holland and in, in the Netherlands, where the cinematographers have this extreme idea that that color is vul- vulgar and that they want to turn it all down, hmm. and that you know this um, the color in this dress is too blue and. Mm-hmm. And not in period when I knew it was in period, and right. and it was a really beautiful blue. So, hmm. um, it's it's sometimes I think people, you know, artists in a certain area get into a particular idea, and maybe it all works if everyone's doing that. Right. But to us, it would look very um, dishwatery. Huh. I wonder if there, there might be some interesting anthropological reasons why they want everything muted there as opposed to things. In well, I'm not sure if it's that know. much Dutch or if it's the cinematographers who who work there. Right. The public might, you know, the public yeah. generally goes to the American films that are popping color. Interesting. Tell me about um because you wrote this sucker too from the you did the adaptation. It's not a sucker. It's not. <laughs> no. This beautiful. None of that. <laughs> this beautiful piece of masterwork. Um. No, but you adapted it. So yeah. what's it like taking something that's already there on a page as opposed to writing an original screenplay? How do you, what is there a certain way you attack it? Um, yeah, in order, or how do you do it? Well, what I did was uh, first I knew it'd take a long time and couldn't be sort of anguished over and stressed. So I broke it down into scenes, sort of shuffling the letters, letter format into scenes, and had a very long script that was very readable, but wasn't wasn't a film script. And then came back at it after working on other paying jobs and pared it down, pared it down. Kate Beckinsale helped me pare it down. You're on set, you pare it down. And then we had these really funny actors who you want to write more more scenes for. And so to get space for those, you pare it down more. So um, the I think the secret is to have just lots of good material and then boil it down to just what you want to use and what will work. And what's it like trying to craft... You know, to adapt Jane Austen compared to, say, I, I mean, I assume you've adapted other... I have. Before. So what's it like, you know, with, with her words, on her dialogue, trying to adapt that compared to some other people? Well, there's two really good things about um, working with Jane Austen material. One is it's superb. It's really great. And it's great in different ways. So both the the the, the big and the small are good. So the lines are very funny very funny small stuff and also she really had some innate idea of story and making characters that would lead to story and have that interesting so that's two ways 
The other thing is that um, she's no longer with us to object to what you're doing. <laughs> and so I've had, I've had other adaptations in which the living author kind of gets in the way of the process and pulls the cord on something that is not nearly finished yet. And so they get impatient. And these authors succeed in having their books never filmed because they get in the way of each time someone gets going with it. And so I've had that experience twice, and it's a terrible experience. Yeah. Uh, final question? We got time? Um, when you were, when you, were uh, you know, over the course, of either before you started as a filmmaker and then over the course now, did you have, is there any, any other filmmakers that, that you've admired over the years or would, that you think your style, even if flatter yourself for a second, that you would even want to be spoken in half their their breath with with a certain filmmaker or another. Is there like a style that you've really dug on? Well, he has a different style. He has a different style than I do because he goes really funny and really broad. But I think the the the, the writer director that a lot of comedy directors really admire is Preston Sturgis. Oh God, yeah. Do you have the, a favorite from the early forties? My favorite Lady is Lady Eve or Sullivan's Travels. My favorite is The Miracle of Morgan's Creek. It's such a great movie. That's my great favorite. Movie. So I think he's the one we really are in awe of. That's a great one. I think that came after Palm Beach Story, right? I think Miracle yeah. was like 44. It was, it was, I think it was his last great one. It's a great after that, it kind of he, he got in this bad situation with the studio. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is working also with the right people in the studio supporting him. So there's a guy named William LeBaron, who was really great, who, who let him do all this great stuff. And then this not nice guy came in um, who thought he was a creator too, which is often a problem. Who really wrecked Preston Sturgis, I think. Wow. Yeah, but he shone he shined brighter in that four or five year window than a lot of people. Amazing, would. Yeah, amazing. Unbelievable. Um, awesome. Well, is there anything I like else your you'd taste like to in add? I like your taste in movies. Oh, anytime, yeah. Because there are not that many critics who are into the comedies. Well, I mean, they should watch Sullivan's Travels because the whole thing is saying, yeah. you know, I want to make Oh Brother Where Art Thou a Grapes of Wrath, and then in the end they're like, Yeah, oh yeah, laughter's important. So, so did you start on film or something else? Say again? Did you start out with oh, film I did, stuff? Oh, uh, I did journalism undergrad, and then I got my master's in film, yeah. Uh, so cool. I kind of came at it. So it goes that. way back. It goes, uh, I've, I've always loved it, yeah. Great. It's, it's, a, it's quite the obsession for me, so I appreciate when pick your brain for a little bit. I want to hear what your love and friendship review is in the day. I'll wait until then. Okay, cool. Okay, good. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.